Welcome to the Demystify Sci podcast. Today for you, we have a real treat. We have Dr. Avi Loeb, who is the longest serving chair of the Harvard Astronomy Department. And he is here to talk to us about interstellar objects, aliens, and the things in the sky that we do not yet know a lot about. And so to kick off, we have, we have a very technical question. So there have been three interstellar objects that have been discovered over the course of the last few years that have been sort of confirmed. Two of them, you had a hand in sort of leading people to see the light. But it implies that if two of them have hit the Earth, it would imply that there's a lot more interstellar objects that are already on the Earth. But when you look through the literature at the, the dates, the ages of these objects, all of the dates seem to converge on the fact that the meteorites that have been dated are four and a half billion years old. But if they're interstellar, how is it possible that they're still four and a half billion years old? The stars are of different ages. What's going on? Well, an excellent question. And there is a very simple answer. Uh, there are a thousand times more uh, objects from within the solar system than interstellar objects. So for every rock that you get from interstellar space, there are a thousand more, you know, roughly of the size of a meter, the size of a person that uh, originated in the solar system, meaning they were the building blocks. Think about planets as being built from bricks. And uh, actually, they started from dust particles that condensed at the plane of the so-called protoplanetary disk. So heavy elements sank to the mid-plane and started making dust particles that stuck together and made bigger and bigger objects, uh, rocks, that eventually combined to make planets like the Earth, the rocky planets. And, and uh, then uh, some of the outer planets uh, accreted additional hydrogen and helium, and that's what makes Jupiter, for example. It, has some core that may be rocky and the rest was accreted from, from the surrounding gas because most of the most abundant element is actually hydrogen in the universe. And by the way, that was not obvious, I should say, uh, as an anecdote that uh, um, uh, if you go back a uh, hundred years ago, people thought that uh, the sun is made mostly of the same elements as the earth, okay? Mm -hmm. And then uh, the first woman uh, who did her, her PhD uh, in, in astronomy, uh, the first person who did a PhD in astronomy at the, the Harvard Radcliffe uh, uh, College um, was um, um, uh, Cecilia Payne Kopashkin, and uh, she realized from analysis of the spectrum of the sun that, in fact, hydrogen is the most abundant element on the surface of the sun. And when she defended her thesis, um, Henry Norris Russell, who was a member of the committee and uh, was also the uh, the director of the Princeton University Observatory, uh, told her, remove that uh, conclusion from your thesis because we all know that uh, the sun is made of the same element as, elements as the earth. And she removed it. You know, she was just starting her career at the time. But then he um, was uh, intrigued by her statement and uh, studied the sun uh, in, the, in, in the subsequent years and, and then published a paper saying that she was right mm. and that hydrogen is the most abundant element. So 
just so that you know, hydrogen was the leftover element from the Big Bang. And the Earth, the reason the Earth is not made of hydrogen is simply because the heavy elements condensed uh, to make uh, those bricks that combine to make rocky planets, okay? And so some, some of the bricks were left behind from the formation process, construction process of the, of the planets. You can think of it as a construction project. And, mm. and we find them, okay? So many of them are scattered to the outskirts of the solar system. It's called the Oort cloud that goes out to 100,000 times the Earth-Sun separation, Interesting. So the Oort cloud, the in the in this model, the Oort cloud is the remnants of the condensation of the protoplanetary disk. So, but then the Oort cloud isn't in the plane of the of the solar system, is it? That's right, because the objects were scattered out of the inner region hmm. where those bricks were made. Oh, like they were like spat from from the proto by gravitational forces from the planets that uh, pushed them out kicked them out. Some of the Oort cloud objects came from other stars and were captured by the sun. Um, they may have originated from the original star cluster in which the sun was born. Uh, but at any event... Um, so we, we just haven't found these then, right? That's the idea that... Oh, no, no. So, so Oort cloud, you know, make Oort cloud objects make uh, long period comets. They are icy because they've they are covered with ice because they're in the outskirts of the solar system. And, you know, it's very cold out there. And every now and then one of them comes close to the sun and gets, uh, and the ice gets evaporated. You see a cometary tail. Yeah, I guess I just mean we haven't found any like chunks of these on Earth yet. We haven't found any interstellar objects that we can put our hands on and really date them and see what, where they're coming from. And and you're, but you're mounting an expedition to go collect this, this most recent yeah, so one, right? We, okay, so here is the story. Um, in uh, March 2019, I was asked to have a radio interview about a meteor that was discovered over the Bering Sea near Kamchatka. Okay, and uh, I didn't know much about meteors at the time, so I wanted to read about them online. I found a catalog with data that was collected by government uh, sensors about meteors, and uh, it was publicly available uh, on the J uh, JPL uh, NASA website. Uh, and uh, I told my student, look, um, that was after the first interstellar object was discovered, the Muamua in 2017. And I said to my student, Amir Siraj, I said, why don't you check the fastest moving meteors? Perhaps, you know, they came from outside the solar system because an object moving fast enough is not bound to the sun. You know, that's how a rocket operates. If, if you launch a rocket fast enough, it escapes the pool of, of the Earth and, and it, you know, exits. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so he looked at the fastest moving object and realized, no, that actually was a head-on collision with the Earth. So the fast speed was just a result of it coming just opposite mm -hmm. to our motion. Uh, it's actually bound, uh, potentially. And then the second fastest, was definitely <laughs> not bound to the sun because if you go back in time, it had a, a speed of about 60 kilometers per second, far away from the sun, outside the solar system. So very fast object, even by the standards of the local stars, it moved you know, twice as fast as most stars move relative to the sun nearby. So uh, we uh, decided to write a scientific paper and announce it. Now, uh, the paper was not published because the reviewer said, we don't believe the U.S. government. They didn't... Re <laughs> Wait, the, re the reviewers said that? Wow, I love that. Was it a British journal? 
this was the Astrophysical Journal uh, Letters, which is a respectable, very prestigious uh, journal in astrophysics. And so I said, look, the government knows what they are doing because they need to know whether a ballistic missile will he is heading towards Boston or New York City. They need to, do to know it very precisely. So they are monitoring all objects entering the atmosphere with satellites, with ground-based uh, sensors. You know, you can't say the government doesn't know what they're doing and they don't release the, the error budget, the, the uncertainties, just because they don't want to reveal to adversaries, to other nations, the precision by which they know the data. Mm -hmm. um, so then, I, I, at the time, I was chairing the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies, and a member of my board, uh, Alan Hurd, uh, was from Los Alamos, and I complained to him at dinner about my frustration with the referees that do not believe the government suppress uh, progress in scientific knowledge. And so he said, well, let me look into that uh, behind the national security fence. And uh, he tried to promote the release of the uncertainties and sent me an email saying the uncertainties are less than 10%, meaning that your conclusion is definitely valid. We went back to the reviewers. They still said, that's not enough. We don't believe an email coming from Los Alamos. That is not sufficient evidence. Okay, so then... I consulted another uh, colleague and he contacted a, a person who works at the Office of uh, Science and Technology Policy at the White House. And, and it took three years, three years. And eventually, a couple of weeks ago, a letter, a formal letter was tweeted from uh, the uh, Space Force or uh, the US Space Command uh, to NASA saying, uh, this meteor that was identified in the paper by Siraj and Loeb is indeed interstellar at the 99.999% confidence, period. Wow. Now, That's the question is, so we, we, we submitted, resubmitted our paper for publication just a few days ago. And moreover, the, uh, the US Space Command released uh, together with NASA, they signed an agreement a year ago, and all of this came together. They signed an agreement to release some uh, light curves of meteors because NASA was tasked in 2005 to find all the objects that may collide with the Earth that pose a risk to, to, to our lives, you know, that may destroy a city. And they, are, they recognize that they're falling short of their task. They are not really identifying all the objects they need, so they ask for help from the Pentagon, because the Pentagon monitors all the objects that hit the Earth, right? Because they are looking, it's a missile warning system. So NASA signed an agreement in 2020 with the Pentagon about sharing information, and as part of that is this confirmation letter that we and the light curves of meteors. So we went... Oh, so what is the significance of the light curve? Because okay, this... Okay. So it's, it's, it's fascinating because the light curve was released just a week ago, okay? And immediately as it was released, it looked like it's very unusual. It has, this is the light curve from the fireball that was created when the meteor entered the atmosphere and burned up, you see? So an object entering the atmosphere burns up because it moves at very high speed and the friction with the atmosphere generates a lot of heat. So in this case, it was, the amount of heat was about 2% of the energy released in the Hiroshima bomb. Mm, okay? mm -hmm. uh, so that's significant. That's a lot of heat. It's uh, at the peak of the light curve of the explosion, 
the power that was released was about a quarter of the total power consumption by the world population. And is that just because it was moving like so ever? fast? Or, or in this last year? No, no. The power is an instantaneous thing. You know, oh, that's per time, much, yes. How much energy per time humanity is using. I see, so I see. At the peak of this fireball, uh, the amount of power was a, big boom. was a quarter of the world consumption. Okay. Is, is this, is and so the idea is this is too much for a local meteor to be... Oh, no, no, no. That's not the issue. Okay. The government okay. Measure, measured this, the velocity, the speed of this object, the direction it was moving. So based on that, we were able to tell that since it entered so fast, it must have been unbound to the sun. Because if you go back in time, you know, it's a, a speed that is so large that the sun, sun's gravity cannot bind such an object. So it mm -hmm. came from outside. The sun. So that's what the government confirmed. But the light curve gave us additional information because it had three flares in it. Mm -hmm. And moreover, they told us, the government said that the most powerful flare where the velocity of this object was measured uh, occurred at a, a, an altitude of 18.7 kilometers, which is relatively low in the atmosphere. So that meant the object actually penetrated throughout the atmosphere all the way to the base of the atmosphere at a height of 18.7 kilometers without disintegrating. Now, what does it mean? It means the material strength of the object was quite high. So we calculated because an object entering the atmosphere, you know, feels a force opposing to its motion, which is the friction with the air. And you can calculate how much pressure is exerted on the object. It's called ram pressure. It's the mass density of air at the location where the object is times the velocity of the object squared. That's the amount of momentum per unit time, per unit area, which is opposing the motion of, uh, of the object. And, and this actually uh, puts stress on the material. So mm. when this force is strong enough, it will tear the meteor apart. It will tear the object apart. So this is some kind of new meteor that we haven't, this is some sort of new material or new composition? That... Well, so the, yeah, that's exactly the point. So we were able to calculate that the object disintegrated very, you know, low in the atmosphere, meaning that it had a very high material strength, stronger mm. than iron. And is the the calculation of how low it was in the atmosphere comes down to the fact that there are only three flares and not more? Because I'm looking at the intensity versus time graph right now, and it looks like, so it's like two flares that are about the same size, and then one larger one, and then it immediately goes back down, and the, the intensity is very low. And so you think that that's where it broke up? No, that's what the, go the government measured, the position, you know, the mm -hmm. elevation, where the final brightest flare was, and... Mm the speed of the velocity of the object at that point okay mm. and uh, from that we can infer how much stress was acting on the object so we say the object at that point lost its integ integrity you know it, it, it wasn't able to sustain its uh, its structure and so uh, but it ends up being a very strong stress so iron would have disintegrated higher up in the atmosphere by how and much a stony meteor, you know, if you just take rock, it would have disintegrated far ab above where this object was. So the fact that the object was able to survive, to sustain itself down to this level in the atmosphere implies that it's actually tougher than an iron meteorite. 
you know, and, you know, it's two times tougher than an iron meteorite, and it's more than 20 times tougher than uh, a stony meteorite, the more, the most typical, uh, you know, only 5%, the 20th of all rocks falling from the sky are made of iron. Mm. Okay. So just talking about iron by itself is discussing a small minority of all meteorites. And this object was even tougher than that. So my point is, it was in terms of its composition, a rare object. What are some what are some candidate compositions? What are some of the materials? Yeah, is that there a narrow window of what those can be? Yeah, so um, there are some materials. Now, the point is we don't need to speculate. Why? Because when the object disintegrated, there were droplets. It was melted. That's what happens to a meteor. And then droplets of it fall down, in this case, to the ocean. Okay? Mm-hmm. And this was... Uh, the ocean next to, uh, off the coast of Papua New Guinea, a beautiful location. So we know where it, th- these uh, relics, these um, fragments fell in the ocean, and we are planning an expedition. And the ocean is pretty deep there, I should say. It's uh, 1.7 kilometers deep. Mm. But you can, uh, we actually got already uh, a, a, a person that owns uh, a ship that uh, is interested in working with us and I just need to get it funded and and we need to decide about the timing but the idea would be to go there to this region that has roughly a size of a kilometer because there is some uncertainty of exactly where things landed and survey basically scoop the ocean floor for all the small uh, fragments that were left from the meteor. Now, how do you how do you find them? Well, you use a magnet because these are mostly magnetized, whereas seashells are not magnetized. So you just scoop the surface. That could take a week, but it was done before. It can be done in this case. And then we bring those fragments to a laboratory and examine their composition. So that's the beauty of this, that you can put your hands on the material that made an object that came from outside the solar system. Now, would that be would that be would that be the first time that anybody has done that? Yes, that would be. T- t- tell us, t- promise us that you'll also date the object. Oh yeah, we can date the object uh, based on its composition. If there are, um, for example, uh, radioactive e- elements mm-hmm. that we can uh, find in it, then uh, based on their lifetime, half lifetime, then we can figure out the age of this. And as you said, you know, we can demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt if uh, that the object did not come from the solar system, either by its age or by its composition. Because if, if an object came from another star, uh, you know, that star was exposed to a different supernova explosion nearby, to a different collision of two neutron stars that produced the, the rare elements that we find here on Earth. So it's unlikely that the heavy element abundances would be the same. Moreover, that's if you assume just a natural origin, but imagine that it's a piece of equipment, okay? Just like a spaceship, uh, you know, uh, that is defunct. Suppose Voyager, okay, we sent out Voyager. A billion years from now, it will be completely defunct. It will not operate anymore. And suppose it collides with a planet like the Earth, you know, it will burn up in the atmosphere and some relics would be on the ground. And if if there is a civilization there that will examine those those fragments, they would realize that 
it's a piece of equipment because the abundances, you know, they are not what you expect for a natural object. What would it be? What was uh, what was it made out of? Like, what kind of rock will they look at when they get the broken pieces of the Voyager? Well, it will not be a rock. So they will find metals, alloys that we produce to make Voyager. And I, I guess I mean, could they mistake it for a meteor? No, so a meteor is just an object burning up in the atmosphere. You say nothing about its composition. Mm, I see. There are 95% of the meteors that we find from the solar system are made of rock, stone. I see, I see. And um, that's for an obvious reason, because as we discussed before, these are the most abundant Lego building blocks of planets, okay? But then, um, you know, we expect roughly one in a thousand of them to come from interstellar space. And um, and the first one is the one that we identified with my student uh, based on its very high speed entering the atmosphere. Uh, looking among all the meteors that uh, meteorites that landed on the ground and finding the one out of a thousand is you know it's very difficult to do if you don't have a hint as to which one you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing to keep in mind is the Earth is a very small fishing net. Okay, mm-hmm. so right now at any given point in time there are millions. Uh, meteors the size of the one that landed near Papua New Guinea in 2014. There are a million of them, and the Earth is just scooping, you know, one every few years because it has a small area relative to the region that it's uh, going through around the sun. So um, there are lots of them. It's just that we can't see them until they burn up in the atmosphere. But we can see an interstellar object like Oumuamua because it was as big as a football field, a hundred times bigger. And then from the reflection of sunlight, we could have seen it. But even that we were able to do only over the past decade. Before that, we didn't have survey telescopes that allow us to see objects like that. You know, so when Enrico Fermi asked 70 years ago, where is everybody? You know, that's like, like sitting at home on the sofa and saying, you know, where are my neighbors? Well, you have to look through your window. If you don't use a telescope, you know, you won't find your neighbors. And so are you optimistic that we're going to start finding neighbors? Because it seems like this is what everything is starting to sum towards, right? The, the, the shift in conversation has become apparent where even the New York Times is reporting on apparent UFOs. Oh, the New York Times reported about this meteor as well, just a week ago. And, um, you know, over the past uh, year, I had uh, 2,500 interviews about my book, Extraterrestrial. And um, there is a huge amount of interest, and I'm trying to shift the conversation into the mainstream of astronomy. And we have the Galileo project that we can speak about. But Mm -hmm. the one thing I I wanted to say is... um, you know, it's not the traditional type of searching for extraterrestrial technologies, which was looking for a radio signal. Right, study. I, I still remember my sister being in college and she downloaded, you know, she, she came home and she downloaded study. And I remember just watching the trace, hoping that I would see something, but never seeing anything. Yeah, but that's like um, trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be active when you're listening. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's quite possible that most of the time, you know, other civilizations that predated us are dead. You know, we can't communicate with them. They existed a billion years ago. You know, time in, in, in the universe is measured in billions of years. So what's the chance? You know, we had a window of communication only over the past century, which is one part in you know, a hundred million of the age of the universe. And what's the chance that another civilization will be exactly active with the same technologies as we are using at the same time so that you can have a conversation? Quite small. So most of the time you'll find dead civilizations. And the- what, what is the range of ages of the stars in the galaxy? Like, 
Well, oh, it's, it's billions of years. So most of the stars from billions of years before the sun. I see. And my point is, Albert Einstein was not the smartest scientist since the Big Bang. There was very likely a smarter scientist. Are you allowed to say that out loud? I don't think... <laughs> I'm saying it. Uh, nobody is arresting me. So oh, well, that's good. Yeah, it's good. That's good. I appreciate that. <laughs> but uh, You heard it here um, first, folks. But my point is, uh, it's very likely that there was a smarter scientist around another star a billion years ago. And in that case, the civilization that existed back then may have sent probes that filled up the entire Milky Way galaxy, including the solar system by now. And uh, we should look for those. Now, I actually calculated, you know, so it's not the Drake equation that people often refer to in the search for extraterrestrial signals. It's a completely different equation. It's an equation that says, okay, I have a certain survey volume. What's the chance that I'll find an object? It just depends on the local number of objects per unit volume times the survey volume. That's it. And if you can... So basically factoring in where we're looking as opposed to the entire galaxy. Yeah. And it's like, and it's the density of the local area. Yeah. I mean, it's just like searching for plastic bottles on the beach. You know, it depends on how many bottles you have per unit area and then the survey area that you have. And uh, if you have a fishing net like the Earth passing through space, then it depends on the flux of those objects. How many objects per unit area, per unit time are passing through? And that depends on the number of objects per unit volume times their characteristic speed. And all of that may depend on size because, you know, NASA never launched an object the size of a football field, but they launched a lot of objects like this meteor. So we may have many more objects like that that are artificial. But and they, will, they will eventually launch an object. They won't launch an object the size of the football field, but they're planning on building, you know, the Artemis Gateway, which I imagine is going to be large. It, it will be large, but not as large as Oumuamua was. So my point is there may be many more objects passing in the dark that we haven't noticed. But the most important factor in this equation that I published in a, an essay a month ago, the most important factor, I call it the ostrich factor. Which is people not wanting to look, right? Exactly. Like the scientists and the politicians. We know the answer, or people that worked on rocks for all of their career, experts, quote-unquote, saying everything in the sky is natural, everything is a rock, period, and don't even dare to think or to suggest that something might be artificial because we will ridicule that, that notion, which is the current intellectual culture that we live in. And I say, you know... Um, if you have this ostrich factor and nobody is willing to consider the possibility of um, an extraterrestrial equipment in space, then we will never find anything wonderful in the sky because you will always... So take the example of Oumuamua. It was unusual. Everyone agrees it's anomalous. Why, why do I say that? Because people try to explain the anomalies and all the mainstream proposals were of something that we've never seen before like a hydrogen iceberg, a nitrogen iceberg, a dust bunny. These are things we've never seen before, but the mainstream community of astronomers jumped on those possibilities and celebrated and said, yes, here is an example of a natural thing. And before we rule this out, this should be the favorite model and the artificial origin should be ridiculed. Okay. You know, it, it seems like... Wait it, a second. It, yeah. Wait. So okay. meteor, I, I, I should say this meteor demonstrates that it's not a nitrogen iceberg, it's not a hydrogen iceberg, and it's not a dust bunny. Why? Because this would have burned up high in the atmosphere. 
The fact that it went all the way down so that its material strength must be bigger than that of iron, solid iron. I mean, we're big, we're big fans of material science explanations here. We actually, we have a different channel that we run called The Material World, where we explore uh, atomic and quantum phenomena and see if we can sort of come with material science uh, yeah, my background is, is in material science also. I did my PhD in, in a, a, a brand of biological material science. But that brings me kind of to what I, I wanted to ask you, which is, it seems like this is revealing a, a more broader trend in cosmology and astrophysics, which assumes that when we look up in the sky, we should not be seeing biology. But it seems like you're saying, whoa, there might be biology at play here. And my question is like, how much more could biology be playing into what we see in the sky? I know you're a big fan of, of uh, you, you write a lot about dark matter and, and the conundrum of why gravity, uh, our gravitational theories fail to explain some of the motions at the broader scale of the universe. Uh, how much, I know you're also a fan of Stapledon. And so I wanted to ask you how much, how far do you think biology could be reaching into the way things are playing out at a grander scale? So, um, you know, the cosmos invo involves, the things that we can easily see involve a huge amount of energy, you know, like stars exploding, uh, stars burning up their nuclear fuel, um, the expansion of the universe. These are things that are very difficult to engineer. And if you were to take a civilization like ours, we are, you know, producing a small wrinkle on what nature gave us, okay? And uh, as a result, it's very difficult to detect the signature of that, especially if it's uh, short-lived, you know, like we existed with our technologies and science only for a century out of the long age of the of the earth. And uh, so we actually we had an episode about that. We invited uh, Gavin Schmidt from NASA. He wrote the Silurian hypothesis paper a few years ago. And so we were talking about exactly that. Like there's very few traces of even a civilization that predates us on Earth, let alone the trace that we will leave another few billion years down, down the road. Well, exactly. There is a tension between two things. One, the ability of a civilization as it develops its technologies to destroy itself, you know, mm. either through wars or through changing the environment. Uh, we or through making everybody plug into the matrix. <laughs> we are doing both of these. If you read the news uh, <laughs> right now, we are destroying the environment and, we are, and there is a war. Um, and uh, the, se the second uh, ability that technology provides us with is to uh, endeavor into space, okay, to venture into space. And, uh, of course, if we were to send monuments into space, they would survive for a long time. They can outlast the sun. And, frankly, I think these are the best monuments to produce. You know, when I go to Harvard Yard at Harvard University, I see... Uh, statues and uh, paintings in uh, University Hall that uh, are, you know, show past presidents of Harvard or, or deans that wanted to preserve their physical image. And frankly, nothing will uh, from that will survive a billion years from now because the sun will burn up the surface of the earth. So this is not a good way to preserve a memory of yourself. A much better way is to send monuments to space. Okay. So if it's like, <laughs> I love this idea. This is a great business idea. Like partner with SpaceX and start just shooting monuments to the edge of the solar system. Right. Actually, um, I'm, I'm <laughs> contemplating the, that business plan right now. Uh, but um, 
But uh, I should say that you're going to be the you're going to be the first space trillionaire. You know, they keep talking about the first space trillionaire. You're going to harvest the like everybody's desire for 15 minutes of fame, immortality, and their love of sh shooting rockets. Like they can glue their DNA to it too. It'll be immortalized. <laughs> yeah. Right, but uh, but actually, frankly, you know, I participated in a forum uh, in the Washington National Cathedral a few months ago where Jeff Bezos was talking about space tourism that he was inspired to pursue as a result of watching Star Trek as a kid. And I thought to myself, um, you know, space, uh, going exploring space as a result of commercial interest is not the right approach uh, because there is no business plan to leave, the, to, to leave the solar system, for example. It should be driven by you know, exploring the unknown, learning about things that we don't know about. And um, so to me, you know, space is huge. If you lift your body by 1% of the Earth radius uh, to 50 kilometers and you claim victory, that's, that's not very impressive, even if you are a multi-billionaire, because the universe is 10 to the power 19 times bigger than the size of the Earth. So be modest, first of all, don't um, don't get the uh, pride out of exploring a little bit of space because space is huge. Get, get a sense of modesty and explore. Try to figure out what's out there. And I, you know, for example, one day there was a person uh, on the street next to my home looking at our, at, my, at our house. And my wife told me, who is this person? Why don't, is he stalking you? Because people know about you. I said, well, I'll go out and check. And I went to that person. You know, I'm not afraid. At this age, I don't have much to lose. You know, maybe I'll lose a decade or two of my life. That's pretty much it. Uh, I went to, to him and I said, who are you? Why are you watching it? Uh, you know, looking at our house for so long. And he said, well, I used to live in this house 50 years ago. So I said, okay, well, do you want to see the backyard? He was a kid. And he said, well, my father actually buried a cat in the backyard called Tiger. And I said, I know this name because I saw a tombstone. You know, we, we live in this house for 20 years and I saw a tombstone uh, with the name Tiger on it. I was hoping there is no tiger under the tombstone or nothing <laughs> bigger than that. And now I know that there is a cat that was buried 50 years ago. So to me, it served as a lesson that uh, if you share space with another being, uh, sometimes that being, that visitor may know more about the, the space that you own from the past. And therefore, we should welcome interstellar visitors because they may know more about our solar system than we know. So we can learn from them. So we should welcome uh, what we can learn from visitors. And that's part of my interest in seeking equipment from outside the solar system because, you know, you know we can learn about new technologies. We might not be the smart, smartest kid on the block, I mean, obviously, it will be a blow to our ego. We prefer to believe the universe is filled with microbes that we are superior to, with atoms that we are superior to. But perhaps there is a smarter kid on the block. You know, my daughters thought they are the smartest because they compared themselves to family members when they were young. But when we took them to the kindergarten, they were shocked that there, there is a smarter kid on the block. And they would have preferred to stay at home. And I believe this drives some of the psychology that many humans have. Which is the that they want to maintain the illusion that they're the the ultimate. Yeah, that's a virtual reality. We are attracted to virtual realities that flatter our ego. That's why some people put makeup on their face because you know you pretend that you look better than you actually look like. I I prefer to uh, see the pimples in the face of reality because 
I, you know, if you know what reality is like, you can adapt to it. If you believe in an illusion, you get things wrong. For example, there were these philosophers during the days of Galileo that said, we don't want to look through a telescope. We know that the sun moves around the earth. They put him in house arrest. Today, they would have canceled him on social media. Now, if you were to ask those philosophers to design a spacecraft that would reach Mars, they would never get to the destination because they thought that Mars moves around the earth. So my point is, you know, you can believe in virtual realities that flatter your ego, that we are at the center of the world. That's good. You will feel good about it. You can put Galileo in house arrest. Everyone would applaud. Yes, that's consistent with my religious beliefs. Great. Everyone would like each other. But the point is, you will not adapt to the reality that surrounds you, and you will never be able to have a space mission that will be successful if you adapt to that, if you believe in this virtual reality, because it's not the actual reality. Is this the same reason that physics doesn't tend to consider biological explanations for the, the large-scale structure of the universe as well? Yeah, I mean, so it's possible that there are phenomena that shape our universe that are misinterpreted because of the mainstream belief that discussing life in the universe is an extraordinary claim, and therefore it requires extraordinary evidence before we even introduce it to our lexicon. Mm. Now, of course, there are studies of, you know, searching for uh, changes in the composition of atmospheres of exoplanets, and that will take us a decade or two to build telescopes that will be able to probe the composition of planets. But all of those assume that we are looking for primitive life because that's most likely because we are probably privileged, unique, and special. And this, just like my daughters thought, we're the smartest, you know, mm. nothing like us existed yeah. ever. And we are about, you know, let's not even discuss the possibility that we are not. Now, they, they also assume that it's the same scale of life as us, which has always fascinated me. They assume that they're little things that live on planets as opposed to things that are much, much, much bigger than, than human beings. I remember there was a study a few years ago that demonstrated it was possible to drive photosynthesis solely with infrared light. Yeah. Where they, they found some deep... Because, I mean, I, normally when you start talking about creatures under the ice, people start to get onto the topic of, like, where's their energy source? They need some kind of light in order to be able to do... to, to, to power the metabolic reactions. Well, but they need energy, but not necessarily light. So it may not be life as we know it. That's the whole point. Mm. But um, more importantly, you know, you can even have it in, in, in stars that have sufficiently low temperatures on their... Like, they are called brown dwarfs on their surface. Um, you know, do you know? Uh, do you know the writings of uh, Thomas Gold? Yeah. So, like, he, when he wrote the Deep Hot Biosphere, that was sort of his. That was the 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 PNAS paper concluded with this sort of idea of well, if we're not understanding the scale of what defines an organized process that we call life, then we could be missing it even in the mantle of our own planet because there do seem to be crystalline structures that are there and that are possible to fall into some definition of life if we expand it beyond our own fleshy mammalian bodies. Yeah, that, that's quite possible that we are um, basically blind to things that are different than what we are used to in our daily life. But my point is um, that, you know, we should approach science uh, like a kid approaching reality in the sense of being modest, not being proud. So the biggest mistake humanity made over history, if you look at that, is to be attached, for people to be attached to their ego, 
Okay. Well, to their ideas and to institutions, right? So and I mean, their like careers and yeah, we, you gotta... we think about this all the time. And I saw that you wrote about this as well, which is this idea of what would it actually take for the scientific community to shift on consensus? How many reputations have been made and built and maintained, especially with fundamental ideas, and especially now where there's this culture of the science is settled, trust the science, believe in science, and you stand on the outside of it and you're like, that's an insane perspective to it's have on science. It's completely insane because, you know, the only reason I'm a scientist is because as a kid, I was asking a difficult question at the dinner table and the adults in the room would dismiss that question because they didn't know the answer. And I thought that by becoming a scientist, I can address questions that I'm interested in and use the scientific method to answer them. But what I see around me are those adults in the room. Now, these are the mainstream scientists. Now, why are they behaving this way? Because they associate their reputation, their image, their ability to get awards, appointments, and so forth with their past knowledge. Okay, so they become experts and want to explain anything that we see based on past knowledge. That goes against the, uh, our ability to innovate, to discover new things, because new things are not included in our past knowledge. So you have to allow for that. If you keep dismissing new things just because you want things to conform with you, like if you see a rock, uh, if you see an object in the sky and you're used to working on rocks for your, all of your life, and this object doesn't look like a rock, you know, what, what you find the experts doing is saying, oh, it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before. Uh, forget about it. Okay, that's what they say. And there was this... Uh, colloquium about Oumuamua, the, the object that I talk about in my book, Extraterrestrial, at Harvard. And when I left the room, one of these experts told me, Oumuamua is so weird, I wish it never existed. And when you think <laughs> about it, it means A it bothers me. A true scientific perspective. It, now, it should be exactly the opposite approach because you should say nature is trying to tell us something. If there is something unusual that we observe, then we should dig deeper into that because we might learn something new. Okay, it's exciting. Is it's there a way to incentivize the scientists to actually move forward with, the, like, is there a way to incentivize that kind of progressive, curious attitude that, because everybody's just trying to protect their, their little turf and... And their tenure and their reputation. I, I mean, mean there's, a, there's Nobel them. Prizes right? awarded like, their for survival's stuff. on the table. Yeah. You see, the tenure system was invented so that people will not be afraid about their job security. That was the whole idea. But, but it's now, not even about job security, but it's like, think about it. If somebody gets a Nobel Prize for something, and then later on, it turns out that, well, we gave a Nobel Prize for an idea that wasn't good, the entire institution of science becomes fragile because it is based on the idea that it's giving awards for ideas that are in their final form. Well, Enrico Fermi got it for a wrong idea. The same Enrico Fermi, the world, you know, the, the amazing physicist. So my point is very often you find scientists saying we should not communicate with the public until we are certain. And then they go to a press conference and announce as, as if they are tutor, you know, lecturers in a class telling the students, this is the truth. Okay. And then a few months later, turns out they were wrong. Okay. And that happens a lot. So my point is stop pretending. You know, science is work in progress. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we have uncertainties, we should admit them. When we are not sure, we should admit it. But we should be curious. And the public would appreciate uh, this honesty uh, because then it will become transparent to the public. It's not as if there is a class system where 
Now, the other thing that bothers me is that within the mainstream of academia, you have these cultures that decide to disengage with the public and work on things that are of no relevance to the public. Like, they, you know, people can argue about how many angels can dance on the tip of a pin if you can in, uh, associate this question with very fancy mathematics mm -hmm. so that you can demonstrate that you are smart. Well, you know, you can talk about extra dimensions or entanglement of black holes and in, in extra dimensions or all kinds of questions that the public doesn't really understand. But they allow the practitioners to demonstrate that they are smart because they can do mathematical gymnastics, convince uh, gatekeepers or people on selection committees to give them awards and honors and appointments. They just show that they're, they're using it as a sandbox to demonstrate that they're smart. Now, I actually, I noticed how simple it, in the in the Medium articles that you wrote, that was something that I really loved, where you used math. No calculus. But no, you used it in this very straightforward way where you were like, well, look, if we wanted to understand this, this is how we could construct this equation. And this is how the terms would relate to one another. And it was a very intuitive use of mathematics that I never see in scientific writing. Well, I should, I should tell you that when I'm giving um, a colloquium or a seminar, and sometimes the people who introduce me go into length, in length into my various titles and so forth, I say, you, you shouldn't have wasted this time because fundamentally I'm, I'm a farm boy. You know, I, I was born on a farm. I think pretty much, uh, you know, in a simple-minded way. And I explain things that I understand, okay? And I'm not trying to impress people. You know, like, for example, if Oumuamua ended up being a technological relic, you would not need very fancy math that involves extra dimensions to describe this fact. You would just say it has bolts and screws on it, and you can read off the label made on exoplanet Y. Okay, this is something that a, a kid can understand. Now, uh, of course, it will not make you look smart, but who cares about it? This would be the most fundamental discovery that humanity ever made. Okay, so I'm saying mathematical sophistication on ideas that may end up being Ponzi schemes are not really our goal. On ideas that have no relevance to society, you know, that's not what science should be engaged in because it's not an activity intended to demonstrate that we are smart. It's an activity intended to explore reality, to figure out, you know, our environment so that we can adapt to it. And that may not involve fancy math. So to have this culture within the mainstream of physics, where you have half a century of people doing mathematical gymnastics in the context of string theory, and when you ask them, okay, you are supposed to unify quantum mechanics and gravity. Can you tell me, please, in those two cases where we have a need for your expertise, can you tell me what happens in the middle of a black hole where quantum mechanics and gravity play a role, or what happens around the Big Bang. Can you tell me what, you know, how do, to resolve these singularities? They say, oh, it's too difficult for us. So, you know, my point is, if I invite a plumber to fix the toilet at home, okay? And the plumber says, you know what? This is too difficult, I can't do it. And then I say, okay, well, I have another problem in my faucet, you know, there is a leak. Can you fix that? And the plumber say, no, that's also too difficult. <laughs> I would argue this, this person is not a plumber, okay? So you can't, on the one hand, work with the ambition of unifying quantum mechanics and, 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 and gravity for half a century, have no experimental test to what you're talking about, give each other awards, you know, and, 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 and pretend as if you're carrying forward the torch of knowledge 
about the physical reality, which is, how can that be the case? Okay, so you can call yourself a mathematician. That would be fine with me. Uh, or just like this plumber, if the plumber would say, you know, I'm actually a critic. I'm, you know, I, I can make statements about movies. And I, I, I would say, fine, but I will not hire you. As a <laughs> so my point is, you, you, you can do whatever you want. I have no problem. I have no issue about people working on mathematical concepts. I have no issue. But you can't pretend to be a physicist when for half a century you, you, you never made a prediction that can be tested. And moreover, you know, uh, you, you can't pretend that you are carrying forward physics in any way, this way. Because, you know, one thing I learned from Bernie Madoff is, you know, he had a beautiful idea. It was very beautiful. People were willing to give money to Bernie Madoff. That illustrates how beautiful the idea is uh, that he would make money irrespective of what the stock market does out of the investment they give him. Well, uh, perpetual and, motion machines have, have long been a favorite, uh, a favorite yeah, ploy for people. But, but the whole point is you do the experiment, you ask him for the money back, and when he doesn't deliver, you put him in, in jail. I mean, obviously, the experiment is not a nuance, okay? It's not something you can give up on uh, because there are so many beautiful ideas. You can do mathematical gymnastics forever during your life, but it may have nothing to do with reality. So how do we tell? By doing the experiment, by looking for evidence. And somehow this element was taken out of the mainstream of theoretical physics, yet ideas that are possible to test, like checking whether there are objects in the sky whose nature is artificial, are being ridiculed by other parts of the mainstream. So you have a coexistence of people that are not willing to collect data on objects that are anomalous, at the same time as other people within the physics or scientific community are speculating about things that will never be tested experimentally. And I ask myself, what's the common thread? The common thread is pretending that, you know, just demonstrating that you are smart and uh, trying to maintain your image as an expert in both cases. It seems like the public also welcomes these sort of fantastical, almost mystical ideas because they are looking for somebody. They don't have the church as much as they used to in previous eras. And they need somebody to tell them that there's magic and that there's all these dimensions of existence that they don't know about. And there's something really wild and stunning, like okay. literally oh, stunning so about I, it. Okay. There is also something stunning about thinking about extraterrestrial technologies, right? Because they might... Like maybe, that. but I think that for people that becomes scary because the narrative is... I think that people look at themselves and they're like, okay, well, if we ran into an alien civilization that was less technologically advanced than we were, we probably would murder them and take all their resources. And so they look at aliens and they're kind of like... That doesn't sound like a good meeting, and I don't. And that's the ostrich effect. I don't want to do that, and for good reason, because they're no, no. It's not for good reason because if they wanted to destroy us, they would have done it long ago. Okay. So my view on this is we are just like ants on the pavement, you know. And the ants can talk forever about what protocol, what strategy they should take, <laughs> moving this way or that way when. Uh, someone walks on that pavement, okay, uh, someone on the street, uh, a streetwalker is going by, but that would be irrelevant. This, the streetwalker may step on them or, or avoid them unrelated to what protocol they adapt, okay? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. my point is we might be sort of a middle of the road kind of intelligence. You know, when, when I teach at Harvard, I often say to the class on the first day, 
uh, half of you are below the median. And at Harvard, you know, the students all want to believe that they are the top 1%. And, I, you know, it's a statistical fact. That's how a median is defined, that in, in every class, half of the students are below the median, irrespective of who is in the class. Okay, that's the definition of a median. And uh, so my point is, if I had to guess, I would that say... That must be an existential struggle for those kids on the first day of class. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say we are sort of in the middle of the distribution and we shouldn't... So we should approach the world around us with a sense of modesty. That is really the biggest sin that we have, you know, thinking arrogantly. If you look at human history, it's being driven by a group of people trying to feel superior relative to other people. If you look at science, it's driven by people trying to demonstrate that they are smart. Or but they're, in, they're incentivized towards those attitudes. That's what I'm trying to get at. Can you imagine any solutions to how to incentivize modesty? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, very simple. The solution is simple. You reward people for finding real things that, you know, about the reality that we live in. So if they talk about extra dimensions that in 50 years nobody probes, they are not rewarded. Now, I can give you an example. There is a distinguished prize that was given for a person who speculated or some people who speculated that there may be extra dimensions that, you know, we can look for in some experiments. So he got the award and then the experiment was done and ruled out uh, <laughs> some part of the parameter space. So then the award was given again for the people who did the experiment to rule out the idea that turned out. Now, if you think about it, we went in a circle, we didn't get anywhere. My point is the award should be given to people who really discover real things about the reality that we live in, okay? Not about people who do intellectual gymnastics, people that demonstrate. And, and the, the things that are found about reality may not require a very sophisticated math, okay? But they serve us extremely well, because they help us cope with reality. So when we understand the human body, we can design an mRNA vaccine that will help us against COVID-19. When we understand that the earth moves around the sun, we can design space missions. So any discovery of that sort should be rewarded uh, for the mere fact that it helps us adapt to the reality that we live in and serves humanity. The other scale that should be included is how... Uh, much interest there is in the public domain in society for the question being addressed. So if people, if you realize there is a question of whether we are the smartest kid on the block, and that is a question that is of great interest to the public, you should give it a large weight in terms of the funding. You know, scientists say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, uh, you know, quoting uh, Carl Sagan. And I say, Extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. If you're not funding the search, you would never discover anything. Mm -hmm. We were looking for the dark matter. Most of the matter in the universe is unknown. It's called dark matter. And the Large Hadron Collider that cost $10 billion was partly funded to look for the lightest supersymmetric particle as, as, as the dark matter. We haven't found it. Now, if you were to argue that the lightest supersymmetric particle is an extraordinary claim and therefore we should not fund the search because extraordinary claims require extraordinary, then we would never even put the limit of ruling it out given the Large Hadron Collider data. But the way science is done is you put billions of dollars towards possibilities, you search in the dark, and 
you know, very often you don't find anything, but sometimes you do find, discover something, but you would never discover anything unless you put forward billions of dollars. And to say that, you know, if the Galileo project that I established to look for equipment in space, if that costs 1% of the Large Hadron Collider, that would be a waste of time because humanity did, does not have any extraordinary evidence yet for such equipment. You know, that's a ridiculous claim. It's only 1% of the budget allocated for searching for the dark matter. And you, and in, one fell and in one fell swoop, you would really increase the resolution of all UFO photographs. Yeah, so, <laughs> which, uh, which and, appear and, to have and, and not improved cares. in resolution since 1970. And it's all based on evidence. The public cares about it. So, you know, yeah, the public is wild about that, UFOs. That should be in the mainstream. That should be, that should be a, a, an effort that everyone is happy to pursue. Because even if you don't find anything in this fishing expedition, you clear up the fog. You could tell the public, look, there is nothing that is unnatural or not human-made in the sky to that level of precision, mm. to that level of sensitivity, just don't discuss it because there is nothing, you know. It's just like people, you know, thought that there is a soul in the human body and therefore anatomy should be forbidden. You know, then the human body was opened and we didn't hurt any soul by doing that, by, by conducting operations. We, I, I want to tell an anecdote. We might have gone too far with that. Yesterday, I, uh, we live in this little town in southern Oregon and I opened up the newspaper and there's this weird headline, which was, uh, the state of Oregon bans the for-profit display of human remains. And I was like, that's a weird headline. And so I looked and it turned out that there was a podcast called Death Science that bought a body from some kind of medical supply company and then sold tickets to the dissection. And they didn't anonymize the body. So the guy's name was still on it. And the widow saw photographs of her husband's body dismembered on a table in front of a paying audience. So while, like, I think that there is, like, we do have a tendency to go in these crazy directions where we, um, we have these spiritual constraints on what it is that we can look like, and then we remove the spiritual constraints, and then we go in some crazy direction, and then we're like, well, maybe we need to re revamp this. But I think that there's something about the way that people re re respond to this mathematical magic which gives them a sense of the sacred in a way that aliens don't. Because like you said, if there are aliens and we discover that we're the middle of the road, we're not the greatest civilization that has ever lived, that is not the, the aspirational godlike position that we want to occupy in the world. But if we have spooky particles that are doing crazy things, then we live, we, we live at the pinnacle. People we, want science to prove magic to them, really. Yeah, they well, want... Look, look, at the, look at my daughters. I mean, they, they are really happy, even though they know there is a smarter kid on the block. Uh, I mean, of course, it changed their perception. If I were to ask them whether they want to go on the first day that they spend at the kindergarten, whether they prefer to be at home, they would say, yes, we prefer to be at home because then we would not know about these other kids. But, you know, I think at the end, if you know about the other kids, it helps you because if they're smarter, you can benefit from their wisdom. You know, you can mm. just think as a business person. If I, if there is a technology we can import to earth that will take us a million years to develop, if they know the answers to questions to which we don't know the answer because we don't know what happened before the big bang, we don't know what dark matter is. And then they tell us, you know, we use dark matter as 
rocket fuel. And, you know, it's the most abundant uh, constituent of the universe. There is so much of it. You know, we just cannot understand how you used ordinary matter for rocket fuel. Uh, there is much more dark matter out there and you can do magic with it. Uh, you know, that will elevate our ability to uh, send the crafts to space, you know. And I would rather you know, look over the shoulder of a smarter kid in, in, in the class because then remain ignorant, you see, because, mm. uh, I, you know, I, I don't care, you know, you might argue it looks like cheating in an exam where you're, you know, you're, you're faced with some issues or some problems and you can't figure it out yourself. But if we can save a million years in the process... But if they tell if what if they tell you the stars are, are like the galactic rotation curve, there is no dark matter, and it's just because the stars are moving how they want to. What you know? Would people ex be able to accept that even if it was a more advanced civilization telling them these things? Well, if they have, of course, everything in science is based on evidence. You see, the evidence should be the guide, because you know uh, prejudice very often. And gave us the wrong sense of reality. Okay, so we we know that. And if they if they would argue that, they would also provide us with the evidence. Okay, mm -hmm. and and then of course it will be convincing. You see, I the, the the beauty of science is I don't need to be liked on Twitter. Uh, frankly, I don't have any footprint on social media. I don't care about it. I don't care how many likes I have. Why? Because if the Galileo project gets a high resolution image of an object. Uh, that uh, definitely did not come from this earth because you can see the screws and bolts and you can tell that it's not a technology made by humans, um, then I would be happy, you know, because I would know the answer. It's just like Galileo knew the answer when he looked through his telescope. You know, whether other people accept that or not is completely irrelevant. I would know that there is a neighbor who is more capable than we are. Now, it may take people some time to catch up with this notion. They may resist it. They may have a problem with it. They may engage with the object, trying to bring it down. It won't change anything. You know, just like it didn't change anything when the church and philosophers argued that Galileo is wrong. You know, the earth continued to move around the sun. Who cares what they say? Who cares how many likes the idea has on Twitter? That's irrelevant. Now, of course, if you want to live in a virtual reality, you can put goggles on your head or you can take drugs. You can do a lot of things that make you believe in something that is not true, but uh, that will not change the reality that we all share. I think that's the greatest hope for scientists and for so many theorists who are out there whose theories are not getting the attention that they believe they deserve. I, I, I have so many friends in different disciplines and I'm like, don't worry, if you're right, it will prove out eventually. Like, nature can't hide forever. So I think that's a, that's a really hopeful note for maybe... If can, can cannot hide forever, but uh, there is this ostrich factor. And, you know, we can be very late in figuring out nature just because we don't look. And I think that's a real risk because if you look at animals, they don't build telescopes. You know, the dinosaurs uh, 66 million years ago, they didn't look up. They were very proud of their huge body. They dominated their environment and they thought they would last forever. And they ate grass. But then came this giant rock the size of Manhattan Island and tarnished their ego trip. Okay, so we can be just like those dinosaurs. We can deny that there is anything we are missing. All the rock, every, everything in the sky is rocks that are naturally produced, even if they are unlike anything we've seen before. They are made of nitrogen, hydrogen, they are dust bunnies. 
you know, we can invent all of these. They would be accepted by the mainstream of astronomy. Um, and my point is, you know, if we keep doing that, we will not learn that we are wrong. And we will be, we could be just like those dinosaurs that will disappear one day because they didn't adapt to, to the reality that we're, they are surrounded by. I mean, I think that this is a fantastic thought to sort of to carry with us. We've been talking for a little over an hour. This is this is the direction of science that we ourselves want to see happen in the world because it seems there's a writer that I love. His name is Paul Feyerabend, and he wrote a book called Against Method. And in this book, he argues in favor of scientific anarchy, which sounds scary at first, but it is the idea that when you encounter an idea, you cannot prize it for its age or its, or its belovedness in some community. You have to be able to look at it from a fresh set of eyes and evaluate it to see if it fits better. And that is something that I want to see more of in the world because science has become this terribly calcified discipline where ideas are selected and defended by committee, by consensus, by groups of people. And you know that groups of people value being groups of people. That's, that's by definition. Stanley Milgram did experiments about this. The Stanford Prison Experiment was about this. There's, you know, there's, a there's a library full of psychological literature about this. And yet here we sit you know, at the dawn of this technological age of we're supposed to be so good and you look at it and it's truly something that strikes great fear into my heart because people do want to be ostriches and they do want to look away. And so it is, it is so good to, to hear that you are working on this and that you are sitting at Harvard and that you are not letting this go and that you are planning big things and that you are, you are moving us forward. So thank you, Dr. Keep Loeb. exploring. Well, thank you for having me. And one reason I uh, seek uh, intelligence in space is because I don't often find it here on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully, we'll catch up with you down the road. You got a new book coming out or anything we I'm can look forward to? Yes. All right. Uh, there are a number of projects, including an NFT with Snow Crash and an, a book and, and this expedition to Papua New Guinea. And a lot of things are happening. And, awesome. uh, you know, uh, we live for a short time. I'm trying to take full advantage of the time that I have and, and not worry about how many likes I have on Twitter. That's beautiful. Though, though I would suggest inviting fewer strangers into your backyard. <laughs> well, some of them funded the Galileo project, you know, the, the, there were a few multi-billionaires that came over and I get to meet uh, some very unusual people, I should say. Um, every day there are new opportunities. So it's, it's fascinating. I've never encountered those when I was just doing um, traditional astronomy. Mm -hmm.